0: Hello, and welcome to this pragmatic webinar. I'm Diane Pearson. I'm an instructor with Pragmatic Institute. And today I have the very great privilege of being able to have a conversation with my good friend and former colleague, current colleague, always colleague, Gretchen Hover. So Gretchen, thank you for being here today. My pleasure, Diane. So the title of our webinar today is, what can we learn from life sciences response to COVID-19? Gretchen is uniquely qualified to give us some insights on this because for over the past 10 years, Gretchen's consulting company, Imbue Partners, has been working with some of the companies that you've been hearing about every day. Uh, Her practice has been focused on specifically enabling organizational change, helping design product and go-to-market strategies for the life sciences industry, as well as information services and manufacturing. Uh, Gretchen, I can tell you from personal experience has enabled profitable growth through developing marketing strategies, skills, and change management, and helping companies make that change management stick. So as we start this day, uh, you can see I'm at home, she's at home, we're all at home right now. And we're all thinking in one way or another about COVID-19. Started uh, in Wuhan, China sometime between November and December, and has now spread to every country in the world. We have major outbreaks here in the U.S. in New York, New Orleans, the Bay Area, and Seattle. And who knows where's next? Where, and who knows what might be next? But as product team members, we're also thinking about the responses we're seeing out in the market from all of the different companies and service organizations that we've dealt with daily. Uh, some of them, common household names. Some of them not. So Gretchen is here to tell us what's happening on the ground from that perspective. So, Gretchen, when I think about this, I think that there are definitely unique challenges that the life sciences industry faces. What are those key challenges that they face that are unique when you're trying to get a fast go-to-market response in a situation like this? Well, I think
1: I think it probably depends a little bit on how you define. Um which companies are in the space, right? And so, um, I, I think in a previous discussion, you and I had talked a little bit about what's the difference between a pharma, pharmaceutical, and a, a biotech or biopharma, um, yes. and even medical device companies. And I think, um, you know, if we if we start there and we just say so, pharmaceutical companies are the, really the key difference is the way that these that these products are actually manufactured. It has a lot to do with what the, the depth and the complexity of research and development, how long it actually takes to manufacture them, but but really the, the, the process in which that they're manufactured. And so when I think about clients that I have in any of the, those three areas, pharmaceutical companies who are primarily um, making medicine based on a chemical process or chemical system the biotechnology companies the biotechs are using living organisms that you know such as the name is, is bio they're using living living organisms typically dna um used in and in, in inserted into some kind of living organism whether it's a bacteria virus uh, um any kind of cell something like that and and that's the the, the technology is actually the the um the process that they use to to go through and 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 test and manufacture and actually change something that's going to be put back into the body. So and then and then the the medical device or the med tech companies are those that are producing. Um, it could be frontline care. It could be uh, respiratory. It could actually be um, things such as as in today's world that really matters: COVID surfaces, beds. Um, um, you know, uh, the table accessories, things that are going going to really uh, it could be the masks, right? It could be the tubes, it could be the ventilators, it could be the oxygen hoses. so so if, having said all of that, um I think in some cases pharmaceutical companies are probably going about their business in a, I don't want to say in a fairly normal way. I mean certainly we are all experiencing how we work very differently, but it's the biotechs, um, let me actually, let me save that. I think it's actually the the, the medical, the med tech and the med device companies that, that I work closely with, their world has been turned upside down because so many of them can help in an emergent situation. So they have doubled down on production. Their, their marketing teams, the product teams are literally trying to figure out um, how do we answer the need? The, the, the demand is so great. They were not prepared for the supply. Goodwill is, is overflowing. So how do we actually do that? Now, the, the implication of that, especially when you've got new products that are launching, is all of a sudden they're going to hit um, you know, t- time to peak sales in six weeks or three months, as opposed to a 36-month curve that you typically do for a launch plan. Um, mm. And so they're going to need to figure out what the rest of that business case looks like. Right? So when you hit peak sales and you saturate, what is the rest? How do you handle that, that denouement? What does that look like? Um, when you come back to the biotechs, and, and Diana, if, if I heard you correctly, you really want to know kind of what's, what the big challenges are for them. And I think it's twofold. One is um, patients, and I, I, I've, I've, helped, I've helped launch and prepare and inform no less than 12 launches in, in um, rare and ultra-rare diseases in the last 24 months. And oh um, the biggest thing for them is what they're doing, the successful biotechs are, are, are providing more than medicine. It's, it's beyond the drug. They are providing services and they are improving patient experiences. They are doing everything they can to um, accelerate the, the time to diagnosis. Now, that means you have to be out there. That means that they, they're out there, they are really committed and embedded in these social networks and these communities, especially in rare disease. Um, it's harder to do. So I know, for example, for, for one client in particular, fantastic company that's focused on rare and ultra rare diseases, um, the head of their patient advocacy organization. For example, is is she's on the phone literally or on her video camera from morning to night? There, um, there's incredible outreach for emergency funding, for um, just well, you know, how do we answer the right kinds of questions? What can we do for patients with rare disease or ultra rare diseases that can't get their medicines because they don't? This is a threat to life. One, they're auto, you know, they they're immune compromised, but two. They typically go to they may go to clinics or hospitals for infusions for any kind of, of medicine. So that's that's one piece of it. The second piece of it is this is gonna have very real implications on their clinical trials. Uh patients clinical trials are are waning, right? Or being stopped altogether. And in that said, the ripple effect you can imagine, the downstream effect of us not pursuing clinical trials. Um, or not, you know, not, not pursuing patient identification, patient enrollment, or having to stop them mid-trial. Think about the, the integrity of the data. So now you've got to go back and either start again later on or somehow accommodate for the break. Right? And I, I think that is has very real, um, quite frankly, um, implications for, for lives.
0: And so it's not really just COVID-19 that is the threat. It's the disruption of everything else that was being worked on that now is going to be delayed getting to market because either the data has to be redone or has to be picked up in the middle, which, which might impact it.
1: Yeah, I think that's well said. I think there's, I think there's the emergent situation, right, of, of, not, of not having access to medicine, of not having access to therapy um, and, and their, their, their structures that they need. Um, but there is absolutely going to be a ripple effect of uh, continued research and development and clinical trials in, in all kinds, con- uh, you know, it, and and that could be in pharma too.
0: And so, what about the the um, the drugs and the tools and the sequencing, all all of the various things that the whether it's biopharma or medical devices um, or or pharmaceutical companies, what about the clinical trials that are normally necessary? That are that are usually so lengthy for the elements that we're taking to market right now to respond to COVID nineteen, is yeah. it is it mostly an issue or is it really mostly a supply chain issue?
1: No, I mean I, I think there there are considerations. There are very real uh, contextual circumstances right now that are allowing uh, almost anybody, and I don't I don't mean this. Um, in, in, in any kind of way other than saying anyone who has the right to be in this space, whether they're, whether it's New Balance, who has now jumped into creating masks, right? Because they've wow. got the, the materials, they're, they're right here, they're, they've got a, a plant in Maine, they're right here in Boston, they're made in America, they've literally jumped in, and I forget what the number is, and they've stopped making sneakers, and they're making masks um, on two or three shifts a day. Um, and they've been able to to manufacture and and send as many to New York City, kind of the epicenter of this. So there's an emergent component to this where people are um, anybody who has quote unquote, the right, you know the materials, the know-how, the intellectual property to to help here is pulled in. And I think that there are, um, at least what I'm hearing is that there are um, certainly accommodations made for the kinds of um, for potential vaccines, but also for for diagnostic tests that that are that typically take, you know it, it often would it will often take um, anywhere from eight to ten years and two to three billion dollars to bring a drug to 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 market, right? from from being from working in the wet lab. All the way to being at the patient side, we call that the the bench to bedside process. Um, that is getting concatenated in terms of anybody who's who's able to work on um, on diagnostics, on potential vaccines, on being able to uh, get any kind of, of real material um, help on the front lines right now. And um, the FDA is on top of that. NIH is on that. Um, you know, the director of NIH is is on top of that. And so. There is, there are, there are probably some impl- implications that we haven't yet, we don't yet know about. You know, we know that, for example, some um, malaria drugs are being used right now. It's not clear what the implications of those of those malaria drugs are on on people that have and are struggling and and fighting with COVID nineteen are quite yet. However, we recognize, and by we I mean the clinicians and, and the administrators of, of our, of our healthcare system have reasons to believe that it is, um, the benefits outweigh the risks at the moment. We can't, we don't have the glass ball to look in and see what those risks are right now.
0: It does seem like not only the, the organizations themselves with, um, companies like New Balance, and, and I've read about small businesses that are helping and, and auto companies that are, that are literally digging through bins of parts to see what we can come up with to put together ventilators and masks and working together with the, the medical community to do this. It really does illustrate that this could happen, although I think your point about the, the possible risks that we're, we're embedding in the system, we're acknowledging that that's the case and that we need to do that right now. But do you think that as we go forward, this could change the workflow? Are we going to find enhancements to quote unquote product development and go to market in this very emergency?
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I think it actually goes back to a uh, um, history that you and I share, and it has to do with uh, information sharing and the openness of information sharing. So one of the things that makes the bench to bedside process so complex uh, besides the actual um, the research itself and the bioinformatics and and all of the uh, the work in the, in the labs, one of the things that makes it so difficult is that um, as a whole, um, we in, in life sciences are, are not great at sharing. You can't quickly find what's failed. You know, The notion of fail fast doesn't really exist because um, for either IP purposes or for um, you know, reputation purposes, what have you, it's, it's really hard. You can't go find a database of all the trials that have failed. Right. I mean, you can go to clinicaltrials.gov and you can look at all the active trials, but you, it's really hard for scientists, chemists, biologists to do information searches and quickly find um, information that they're looking for that is available to them. So, uh, you know, a lot of uh, the bigger corporations—and I understand this—but they they think of this as proprietary, even the stuff that's failed. What would be incredibly helpful is if for our for our, our scientists. Is if they had access to what has failed, not necessarily the good stuff that's going to, you know, the, the the things that work that are, you know, I protected IP that that you know go on to um, that go on to manufacture medicines that 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 they own. I understand that, but the things that have not worked would stop would would probably um, accelerate that that bench to bedside process by years if they didn't have to hunt and peck and possibly rerun trials and rerun tests and, and research that other groups of people already known don't work. So I think that is one of the big things, and that has implications in terms of, copyright has implications in terms of intellectual property, has implications. But one of the things that's interesting is, as you, you know, I, whether I'm getting this from um, New England, I get um, updates from New England Journal of Medicine or Fierce Pharma or Fierce BioTech um, daily, but it's interesting the call on sharing information sage you know whoever it is making information from now until you know some set period literally open um i and you know, i was able to get some mit sloan um materials for two days for you know for for 48 hours those that information was available uh free open and allowed everybody and anybody to start sharing. And I think that's what's gonna accelerate. Obviously, that's accelerates your, both your your fail fast model, but also the, the glimmers of hope that the things that you wanna pursue. And I don't know how that's going to play out. Um, but I think that that's, that is something that has changed. It's part of this immediacy around what can we get done now. Um, and it will, it'll be very interesting to see how that how that sorts itself out as we move away from this.
0: Yeah, it it certainly seems like this is just sort of an accelerated microcosm of what what could happen in many industries, but because of the emergency that they're facing right now, all of the the companies that are either directly involved or indirectly helping and feeding, whether it is information or other companies that might have similar parts that that can turn and manufacture differently, or 3D printing, So when we think about that, um, one of the things I I often tell my classes, and I was telling them a lot uh, before this happened, was that if you're listening to your market, most surprises can actually be known. Most surprises wouldn't be surprises at all. Now, I think about that now. Is that true of COVID-19? Was this something that, that could have been known and responded to in, from a product perspective and a go-to-market perspective, were there listening opportunities that either were taken, and that's why we're in as good a shape as we are, or other ones we could have taken that didn't happen? I think one of them certainly is this, this knowledge of um, you know, certain companies, and, and companies do, they, they create their IP, and I, like you, I agree that you've got something that you're going to be launching, but, but failed trials or investigative information. Yeah. What is there that you can think of that either could have been known that wasn't, or truly we just couldn't have known? Um, you know, I would posit that
1: Hollywood made movies about this, right? This is um, the notion of a viral, pandemic Mm. has played around on the periphery um you know in independent films and in in books for decades
0: yeah I haven't looked up stand and COVID-19 yet but um I'm figuring there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there
1: yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the, the notion of of we will be done in or not, certainly not done in, we will experience a, a pandemic that that was um, either came from, you know, quite frankly, it, it question, you know, that it was synthetically made or was, you know, organically made. Both that aside, right, that it escapes and, it, and, it, and, and we're not prepared for is the essence of the storyline um, that, that many movies and books have, have uh, made famous. Um, you know, that's out there. How, do, what do I really think? I really think that um, serious organizations do scenario planning. And they do scenario planning based on risk and probability. And I think this is one of those scenarios that was high risk, low probability. And so do I think the scenario exists out there for some companies? Yes. Was it widely stepped into or embraced? Probably not. Because when you think about resources being tight, uh, we're all doing more with less. Um, you know, we, we, we have, you know, the 2018, 19, excuse me, 2008, 2009 um, recession hit. You know, we're, we're only just outside of that. You know, ten years, et cetera. That reset a few things. You know, really, then coming off of, 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 um, of even nine eleven, right? So every every ten years or so, we we re, recalibrated and have been doing less with more. And I think, I think that COVID nineteen is one of those high risk, low probability scenarios that some companies probably did have an understanding for. Um, and, and perhaps they had some contingency plans, but I don't think it was a mainstream activity. I don't think it was something that was really well understood. Um, Peter Schwartz actually did a fantastic, um, study and scenario play for the Pentagon years ago in a similar but different situation, which is, uh, what is the impact of climate change? And it was deemed as high risk, low probability, ultimately, in terms of what is the, what is the warming of the North Seas look like? What does the melting of the ice caps look like? What does, you know, the impact of the fishing industries look like? But all the while, the way the scenario ended up was that basically, countries were going to end up underwater. And so basically, you know, you know, I don't know if it was like, a, you know, let's, let's call it like, you know, 30 million people or, or some amount of people would have to get, get off the earth. Well, the only way, in his words, that 30 million people get off the earth is war. And of course, it was Pen- the Pentagon that had commissioned the work because they were really interested in um, understanding this high probability, low risk scenario to understand what this could happen. So I just draw that as an analogy to say, really smart people are thinking about this. Um, but it is does not necessarily mean that you've actually stepped into the contingency plans or that you have funded your current activities and your current structures. your organizations are structured in a way that that can pivot really, really quickly. Does that make sense?
0: It does. It does. And I and I like the the terminology, the the high risk, low probability, because I think particularly when we think about go to market in in any kind of business, emergencies hit sometimes from nowhere, sometimes they can be known and monitored, but how do you create a structure without spending too much money or time on that high-risk low probability? Is it possible to put together a mobilization team in case it happens without actually having that team standing Uh, to say, if something happens, these are the, the 10 people or the 15 or the 400 that are going to have to be involved. In making the decisions about what happens next. Yeah. And, and they're going to then do the almost like the chain that you do when when you know kids' school is canceled, people call each other, baseball's mm-hmm. canceled. Yeah. Can we put together a standing structure that's economically feasible for for the average business out there that just might not be able to, to have anything in place for that? And and can those people be listening? Um, one of the things that's that's outside of the realm of um, life sciences was was here in, in Texas, and I live in Austin, Texas, um, H-E-B grocery store. There was an excellent article about how step-by-step step they were actually watching the situation and ramping up their response, and it hasn't been perfect, nobody's has, but it was an excellent of exactly how you could do this without putting too many resources toward it.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I think that a couple of the themes that you've talked about, just first of all, as you say, smart people thinking about it. So inside organizations, product teams can spend a small amount of time thinking about the high risk, low probability, and, and maybe put a response structure in place, even without stockpiling the materials, so to speak. Right. Right. I also heard you say something I'd like to return to, which was the companies that are doing this successfully are are about more than their product right now. Absolutely. And the, the go-to-market, the messaging, the services, uh, the, the, the the personal outreach. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and, and how the life sciences are, are doing a good job, instances where that's really helping?
1: Yeah, um, sure. And, and I i have a i lean towards the the specialty the rare and the ultra rare diseases because a lot you know some some of the the really well understood established markets around chronic diseases um even oncology and things that uh, of that nature um they're it's really based on market maturity right so they're they're in mature understood um the, the standard of care has been established. Those companies, um, I think it's, they have a lot of these things um, in place right now. When you take a look at the specialty um, medicines, the rares, the ultra rare diseases, they are delivering what I said is more than medicine in the sense that the marketing teams and the product teams are those ones that are going to be successful. In some ways, they're, they have to figure out, am I differentiating myself? In in a mature market, or am I actually defining and helping to shape that market and shape ourselves? And if we are on that end of the spectrum or of the continuum, then um, it is actually. Let me just let me say it differently. If we are on either end of that spectrum, differentiation is going to be about your ability to think and and solve for the patient experience. It is more than medicine. So it could be, and, and in doing that you have to understand you have to have an incredibly deep understanding of disease of of the disease state of the burden of care of the of, of access and reimbursement and delivery of the medicine and of the families so 50% more than 50% of of people with rare disease are kids so that means that you are really already dealing with your adult population right so the adult population are going to be voracious information seekers they are going to be advocates they are going to stand in front of the fda and testify they are going to create in lieu of having um maybe an established patient advocacy organization or, or a place in which they can communicate. They, they create these viral social networks that are stronger than anything I've ever seen. Um, they, are, they create their, these own structures. And for a drug co, for a manufacturing company to come in and be a part of that community, um, it is insufficient for them to just say, we've got a great, safe, efficacious drug. We need to be able to tap in and, and become a fabric of that community and deliver on shortening time to diagnosis, improving the patient experience, um, partnering with patient advocacy organizations, partnering with key opinion leaders. And this may be in the absence of data, right? When you are a fairly nascent market and you've only got very, very limited number of of patients and and very low um, prevalence rates, actually going out and finding and, and, and creating What does it mean to be a KOL? It may not be somebody who's well-funded in publishing and and JAMA. Um, It may be somebody else who has anecdotal information. So really, the questions may be the same, Diane. It's the the priorities that they have to ask themselves. Where are we in market maturity? Um, Which traditionally anybody has to ask. But for them, they're the things that pop that I mentioned. It's not, we cannot just go out and market a, a product, we have to be so much more than our tra- pro- target product profile, um, or, or or you won't win. You won't win against the next best competitive alternative, which could be a competitive drug, or it could be something off label. It could be off indication. Um, in, in my experience,
0: well, and 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 I think that theme is something that is is becoming more and more prevalent. In, in larger industries, in more ubiquitous industries, because I think that need to be sensitive to the fact that it's not just the product itself, but it's how it's delivered. Um, how, how a diagnostic test is conducted mm-hmm. on a child makes a difference to a parent. Uh, it absolutely does. In fact, this kind of information,
1: this, this level of, it's really, it's the seek and learn. It is mm-hmm. that upfront. Do I have a visceral understanding of what this patient and their family, their caregiver goes through, of what their care team looks like, um, of all of that? What what they're dealing with um, that informs clinical trial design. That informs patient um, enrollment, right? So I mean, th- those this a very it, it literally spans the entire bench to bedside process. Um, and 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 commercialization it's called the commercialization um, model
0: yeah and and that's exactly the theme i think it it really brings it home to me that you know this is this is so so much beyond a, a typical consumer product or even a b two b software or workflow enablement tool, we're talking about a theme though that would benefit everybody, and that yeah. is this this deep understanding of what does their world actually look like? What other problems are they facing? What else are is this product going to live within?
1: Yeah,
0: And it, it does have to do with how you deliver. What else is delivered with the product? How well the market understands the product? And, and not just the product itself, but really how it's solving their problem. And, and all of that comes together to give that patient experience, which is really the customer experience. and. And that understanding, to your point, I think it's so obvious when you're talking about, what a shock, I didn't realize that, that 50% of, of rare and ultra-rare diseases were um, manifest in children. I, that's that's you know, so emotional. But when you do think about that, it's, there, there's a whole literal family of customers there.
1: Yeah. And, and it yeah.
0: can't be just to treat the child it's got to be to, to treat and, and inform and, and help everyone in that, in that whole ecosystem.
1: Yeah, and I want it, to pick up on something that you just said was really important, which is it's emotional. And another piece that, that I've learned and done a lot of work with, with my clients in particular, um, especially with, with patients, families, and, and doctors, nurses, um, social workers, pharmacists in hemophilia, is that um, having that understanding and having that knowledge is one thing. But what you have to recognize is there is very much a cognitive component to and an emotional component to helping improve the patient experience and 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 it, it is so so what I think sometimes what I've seen with some of the product teams and marketers get stuck is that rationally, Our med is more efficacious. It's safe. It has less side effects. That does not mean you're going to win in the market. It does not mean you're going to unseat an incumbent or even an off-label, even an off-label therapy. So I think, you know, what it does mean is we are looking at the holistic person, the holistic customer and their immediate ecosystem right? Their, their families, their caregivers and things like that. And that I think is a, is, um, I certainly see it, it. It, it, matters a lot in, um, in rare and ultra rare that also matters in, in the bigger chronic illnesses, the chronic disease states, the oncology, things like that. And even if I'm, even if I'm, if I'm, um, trying to understand and, and, and sell, uh, medical beds, right. Or, or masks or, or, um, you know anything it could be in any it could be software right if you're going to really try to understand your user you have to recognize that we make decisions and we be, we behave based on what we think and we and and what we think is almost not what we're thinking but what we're feeling and i think being able to to tie those together closely and enunciate when we're asking our users, our consumers, our our patients and our families to move from the limbic system back here that that sits on our flight or fight, right? And come up here and and exercise our cortex and exercise our choices, our cognitive abilities. That's where you get really powerful change because you're changing who your customer or your patient thinks. And then it's then you can get to behavioral objectives and, and achieving behavioral change. Which you know ultimately is you know take my medicine, um, you know use our therapy, um, things like
0: that. And and having talked to you informally about this at other times, I've I've heard this theme before. It seems like this is something that the scientific community, the life sciences community, is embracing now. But it wasn't always the case, was it? And, and I find that one of the biggest challenges we have is the the more technical. Our students are, the more technical our clients are, the more belief they have in the the technical superior of the superiority of the product winning the day. That if we just make a better product, we'll win in the market. And and the go-to-market or the 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 attendant delivery or or um, services that surround this aren't necessarily as important. Was that an evolution that had to happen in the life sciences market? Is it still an evolution that's happening?
1: I think it's I absolutely think it's an evolution that we saw, I think it's a continuum. I think it's a journey that we're seeing in, in life sciences. Um, you know, it's interesting. I have an, an anecdote from a hematologist I work very closely with and she um, she would say, you know, 20 years ago when a patient wasn't treating preventatively for their bleeds, but they were just ending up in the hospital after they've had a horrific bleed, she could wag her finger and say, if you don't take your medicine, you're going to end up in a wheelchair. Now, saying that to a a 13-year-old with over a 40-year span or a 30-year span, I mean, I have two teenage boys. I can't get them to think about this weekend, much less 30 years from now. I think what they're recognized now, it's just is they don't teach us this in med school. They don't teach us the understanding. They teach us the science, and they teach us the the, the technical, you know, we build technical prowess, and we build, um, you know, um, pattern-seeking, problem-solving skills. In science, what they don't teach us is 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 actually how how that's received, and so that old fashioned finger wagging. If you don't take your medicine, you know, dot dot dot. You're gonna see. I'm gonna see you next week, or you'll be here back again in three months, or you'll die. Whatever, wherever you are on that spectrum. Um, I think that doesn't. You know, they recognize that doesn't work at all, and so what the language and the the way that even doctors, clinicians, nurses um, are using to approach patients as a way to take their medicine, to manage their condition is different than it was, you know, 10, 20 years ago for sure. It's, it, it's a mentality and it's a it's a recognition that um, we are, you know, we have their cognitive insight. There are things that are ahas, there are cognitive ahas about the way our brains work that help us understand how we behave. And therefore, if you can do that, you can better serve patients, families, consumers, um, et cetera. And that really, really showcases the fact that you may have a winning medicine. They can write a script for a drug or a therapy that is, as I said before, most efficacious, least side effects, very safe, very tolerable, and does not get adhered to the script doesn't get filled, fulfilled or it gets fulfilled and it doesn't get used or they use it for a little bit and they fall off and think still about the implications that has on our healthcare system because you're back in the system with other issues and there's certainly a, a ripple effect there. So I think you know the openness and and even the the language, the changing of the language, the openness to recognizing that, that we are um, thinking, feeling entities Living, breathing organisms that that um, you've got to address. You've got to address that the whole, in order to to change the behavior. If I'm putting my marketing hat on, if I want to change the behavior that disproportionately um, satisfies my product, you you've got to be thinking about those things.
0: It it does. And and what are some of the specific ways that the life sciences companies are going out to get this information? I mean, this is one of the things that I know my students ask all the time. Is how do I get it? Where do I get this information? So what are, what are you doing for them and what are they doing to actually gather this information? How is that happening?
1: Yeah. Um, so research is, it's kind of been a, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a huge field and it's, it's really how you use all these different research tools and methods. So what we in particular and view partners, um, spend a lot of time, um, on a person on understanding either we whether we're doing persona development whether we're doing you know independent or one-on-one interviews whether we're doing very 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 small focus groups um we love ethnographic or immersion uh techniques where we actually go in and you you understand you are a silent observer um some of, of what's going on in the family what's in the refrigerator where does the medicine live what does this boy's bedroom look like? What modifications have been, to, been made to the home? What is the relationship and the strain between siblings? Right? Where does the fun happen? Where do the infusions happen? What is the, the you know, all of these unspoken things where we immerse ourselves and, and learn about them clearly pre COVID 19? Um, and so I think that's a big part of it, you know, there. And, and there is still some fantastic research that can be learned from lit review. Um, and I think one of the things that I guess the other piece that we have learned and we're actually trying to solve for with one of our clients is that the redundancy in, in trying in, in, in a lot of different, um, product lines or product teams trying to do their own little bit of research, there is, there really is lacking a synthesized, we're all putting together a one integrated patient journey with a level of understanding that uh, we've never had before from existing data, from new data, from, from bringing, for we call the co-creation, from bringing, bringing patients, doctors, caregivers into our solutioning workshops. They are a part of the fabric of the solution that we're trying to solve in that unmet need. And that's where you get these amazing moments that matter and prioritize moments that matter that a product team or a marketing team can can then go off and innovate and collaborate on to, to, to pulse out um, so I think that's you know that's one of the things that look around your own look around your own office or look around your own team and, and outside of in your peripheral teams because in my um, in my experience you might have five different patient journeys that you've each spent $150,000 to each, you know, on each product to five different agencies to have gone and done patient journey work. You don't need that. Right. What you really need is, is, is knocking down silos, very much the same thing that we talked about in the bench to bedside process. Right free reign of information. It's got to cross the silos, it's got to cross the functional lines, and it's got to be treated as a, a source of truth, right? A growing, living, growing source of truth. And if you can do that in your organization and as and cross product teams, then you can save a lot of money and you can get a really, really deep, visceral understanding of what's going on
0: yeah and you you know that we're we're definitely on the same page with that. We've talked a lot about this central source of truth and this yep. this efficiency of information gathering. Just we have so little time and and you know even the biggest budget, you always want a little more to do something else. If we do our research efficiently and we can share it effectively by putting it in one spot, bringing all those perspectives together, it's so much more powerful.
1: I think Diane, that'll be a byproduct. Will be an interesting byproduct of what happens with our social distancing and working um, from home. Because you know, in in some cases, some some companies have done a great job investing in technology and platforms for um, for collaboration and innovation, for knocking down silos. But the usage, it's it's how are you using the source of truth? Maybe it's out there once, but it doesn't get kept. And it, it's not it's not fed on a regular basis or it's not fed mm-hmm. under that same burden of proof that the first one was. It doesn't get used. It doesn't. It only gets referred to. It gets stale. Like whatever those things are where you're literally what are the rules of engagement around how we are as a product team or a marketing team, um, maybe for a portfolio, maybe in a franchise. right? How are we going to share information that that ought to be informing are the decisions we make? right i mean it's that serious but but how how often have you and i recognize this i i get this i i'm a, i'm guilty of it when i was with larger consultancies yeah well that's on the intranet or that's on our you know that's on the s drive or you know mm-hmm. well we have you know x platform i'm not going to embarrass anybody but you know we have these things in place but usage is low to skeptical and it doesn't live and breathe and be what we need so i think it'll be very interesting to see as as a as a ripple effect, how does we can't because what happens is you can pick up the phone, you shoot an email, or you walk down the hallway, and you you know you you would get your information that way, or you send it over email. So what is it now? How are we forced, and how are we enforced to to practice um, you know this this collaborative sharing and and of, of information? It'll be interesting to see what happens because I think that's that's certainly a really important piece for for marketing teams and product teams.
0: I, I agree. It, it is, because it's it's not enough to get it in one spot if people aren't using it. Right. That's that's a good beginning, but it's definitely not the end result that we're trying to get. So, Gretchen, as, as we wrap this up, this is a wonderful discussion. I can't thank you enough for doing this. As we think about the changes that have come about and what we're learning from our life sciences companies, what we're learning from from everybody, from from both of us, you know, mm-hmm. sitting at home doing this, What are some of the takeaways that you'd like to share that that you hope stay with us as we go forward as product teams? What are some of the lessons you hope we all learn from the situation we're finding ourselves in?
1: Yeah, thanks Diane, it's it's a great question. Um, I think some of the successful product and, and market teams have a really special way of delivering more than a product. I don't mean that just as, as more than medicine, but delivering experiences. And so I would ask that our teams think about what is it, what does the experience, what does that person to person visceral experience mean when you need to translate it into the digital experience? And it's, it's beyond website and knowledge, you know, information sharing and, and pushing things out. It's, it's how do we keep this? How do you keep the dialogue and the, the questions? And it's always, it's always the inquiry. It's always the inquiry that, that is so much more interesting than the actual solution, because that's what can take us in a lot of different ways. So how do we keep up the, the, the line of questioning and the conversation? It's those conversations with each other in my experience, within your product team, within your marketing team, within your cross-functional team, that you challenge each other. And and just in, in challenging each other, you actually have a paradigmatic shift yourself. And once you, in talking to and conversing and working with your team members, when you change your own thinking, you're opening to generative ideas. You're changing metaphors. You're creating new ways of looking at chronic problems um, that, that affect product and, and marketing teams. And so, I would ask all of us to think about how do we do this while we're working from home behind our green screens, or you know, with the dogs barking in the background. I think that's a really important piece. How do we keep this going? And how do we accelerate it? How do we how do we how do we feed it? Um, and I think the other thing I would ask. Our our product and marketing teams would be um, think about how can we best enunciate and illuminate the unmet need? Because especially in life sciences, the unmet need is not just the medicine that goes in through your veins or the oral pill that you take. The unmet need is so much greater. And so when you're solving for that, that really starts before you, during you know, clinical trials, that starts so early. And so I'd ask our product and marketing teams to be thinking about these things when they're pre-launch to when they're launched to their, to their, you know, growth mode, to maturity, to loss of exclusivity. So it's, it's really the entire life cycle of the therapy or the medicine, um, or of the product that, that, um, that I'd like them to be thinking about what is the impact, what are the implications, what could we be doing to take this visceral understanding and pulse it out and make different choices.
0: I love that, and I want to thank Gretchen for being with us today, Gretchen Hover from Inview Partners.
1: Thank you, Diane. It was a pleasure.